very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, it's time that you give yourself the gift of truth. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. And to get in touch with me, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, I want to hear from you. Just go to our website and click on the contact button. And also don't forget to listen to Sanitas Radio. Just go to sanitasradio.com. It's your life. Take control. A few weeks ago, a loyal listener who's a retired flight attendant urged me to contact tonight's special guest, who's also a retired international purser and flight attendant for decades. Our listener said she cried when she heard of the information you will hear tonight. As a flight attendant, she had many suspicions after that Tuesday morning on September 11th, 2001, and it wasn't until now that these suspicions were validated. To many, 9-11 was what our government told us it was. To some, including many of you listening and tonight's special guest and I, it is exactly the opposite. Tonight's special guest is Rebecca Roth, who enjoyed a nearly 30-year airline career working as both a flight attendant and an international purser. She was trained as an emergency medical technician and served as a volunteer firefighter. Her expertise and training as a flight attendant allowed her to research the events of September 11, 2001 with an insider's knowledge that eventually led her to discover details and answers to some of the most haunting questions surrounding that infamous day in our history. For her safety and that of her loved ones, she wrote a book as fiction. The book is titled Methodical Illusion. Rebecca's website is methodicalillusion.com, which is also linked on ours. And from somewhere in the world, I would like to welcome Rebecca Roth. Hello, Rebecca, and welcome to Veritas. Well, thank you very much for having me, Mel. It's my pleasure. And as I mentioned to, to the listeners, you and I conversed a few weeks ago, but you have been in almost every single radio show I know, and let's hope that we don't become repetitive tonight because I really, really want to discuss everything you've written. And to me, it's a little bit difficult after reading the book because obviously for security purposes, for the safety of, of, of yourself and, and your loved ones, you wrote this as fiction. Now, tell us a little bit more about yourself first. Well, you know, I am just uh, a retired flight attendant. I uh, I really never paid much attention to 9/11. 
I knew there was something wrong from day one for the fact that cell phones don't work at altitude and just many other things. The FAA hijacking protocols were not followed. And yet, why will, I worked until 2004, and I... Uh, I just could not look deeper, I guess, until I uh, actually started to write a novel just not about 9-11 at all, but just about life in the jet stream and what it's like to be a flight attendant and what some of my great co-workers were like. And I just thought it'd be kind of a fun book to write. Well, I wanted to introduce a Middle Eastern character into this novel that I was just starting. And kind of, you know, you kind of cook this up in your mind. This is the first book I've ever written. So it's really interesting to me as I'm typing, I was visualizing like a movie screen up above my head, watching and seeing the details and trying to type them in as fast as possible. And I typed into my a computer Google search there, uh, 19 Arab hijackers from 9-11, and up in front of me popped a BBC article dated September 23rd, 2001, uh, from the BBC saying that the Saudi government was suing the FBI for stealing the identity and claiming that six of their citizens were the hijackers from 9-11. Well, my goodness, I'm now over a decade away. I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, well, how did six people live through that? Well, as I read the article, they were actually, uh, several of them wanted, was a pilot, airline pilot, professional airline pilot who'd had his ID stolen from Denver, Colorado while he was uh, in some type of airline training or aviation training course here in the United States. Uh, the others hadn't even ever been to the United States. One that they claimed was at the on the flight that went into Shanksville, Pennsylvania, asked, what is a Pennsylvania? He didn't even know what what that state was. He didn't. He had no idea. He was a an engineer in a petroleum company outside of Riyadh. It's just crazy stuff. And so as I read this, I thought, well, wait a minute now. These these people they're still listed. So I go to Wikipedia, and sure enough, their names are still. Uh, listed as what the FBI in the United States is claiming are these 19 hijackers, and these guys are still alive. Well, that started a little uh, research for me. I put that novel aside, literally, and I just got, it was like being hit over the head with a hammer to discover these guys lived through that. And I thought, well, then what I suspected from day one may not be the real story. And I put in literally thousands of hours a day. I got very obsessed with this because I found so many things connected and interconnected that I hadn't been told of by the media. And, you know, stolen gold and, and gold bonds and insurance fraud. And, I mean, it goes on and on. And it's just amazing how it all connects. And so what happened is I just started into this huge research project. And as I uh, did this, I used my 30-year career and uh, as my background. And I kept looking into the details of uh, phone calls and what the media was saying that the flight attendants were saying and the passengers were saying. And I got the hold of the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board documents and the FAA documents, what the planes were supposed to be doing, whether they were descending or whether they were upside down and what the passengers were doing and saying and the voices and what the call recipients were saying and just charted all this stuff together and saw that it was an impossibility. A true impossibility. So just using all my background, I was a, a purser. I'd flown lots of international flights. I mean, I saw things in the phone calls. For instance, uh, almost everyone that called in said that the hijackers were of, quote, Middle Eastern descent, 
And I don't know anybody that speaks like that. I sure wouldn't have as an airline professional. There were flights I flew out of Amsterdam and Europe into the United States where I maybe had 60 or 80 different countries. I would not have described one of them as of, of Middle Eastern descent. Maybe if they were wearing their uh, that white robe costume thing that they wear in Saudi Arabia yeah. or Kuwait, I would suggest they were from Middle East. But other than that, if you're wearing Western clothes, it's impossible to tell... Um, you know, an Iranian from a Hispanic descent. I mean, it's it just, nobody would say that. I thought it was very odd. And then I started really looking into the details and that sort of thing. And just using my experience as I researched through what happened to the planes and passengers. And that was my driving force. I tried not to get too caught up on how the buildings came down or argue with anybody about what methods were used. Uh, but just looking for those planes and the passengers, because I remember the morning that it happened, I was luckily home from a, a European trip, so I was pretty jet-lagged out, but someone phoned me and said, turn on the television, and I did just as that plane went in the South Tower. And I'm like, how did they do that? Because that right there is kind of an impossibility. And that's one of the things that lots of American and United pilots are buying my book by the case and sharing them and call me and talk to me. And that's one of the questions they keep asking me. Have you ever figured out how they did that? Because it's an impossibility for a 767 to disappear completely. Not the tail section, nothing was left outside that building. It just kind of sucked into- Like a into, knife through butter. Yes. And I even, I could look at that a thousand times and I still have, I have no explanation. And I tell them, I really have no, I have no explanation for that. I remember that morning thinking, that some it was a trick photography thing or it was some kind of a hoax when i saw it that was my initial reaction it's like that's impossible and <laughs> i still feel that way actually by watching that video over and over so it's really interesting what i did discover as i uh, pursued this looking at I, I just like i tell people i put my flight attendant shoes back on and i walked that aisle and um, so I took all the details and the wording from the phone calls. And what I discovered was that this 9-11 event, the entire event was an illusion. And it was a very methodically thought out illusion. And it has been um, very methodically brainwashed into us as um, news watchers and television viewers over the years. And if you'll notice now, if you watch the news now and they're talking about ISIS, this new terror group that we seem to be helpless against, uh, they, uh, they always refer back to 9-11 and, and they're just uh, brainwashing you. I tell people to turn off their television because that's how the CIA brainwashes us in mass. I don't know if you notice ever since 9-11, even and you mentioned this in your book too and we've discussed this a lot here, uh, Building 7 how so many, so many TV outfits, they had especially one, I think it was the BBC, that had somebody discussing how the building had fallen and it was still behind them, which proved to me back then, ever since, that right now, when you switch on the TV channel to channel, mm -hmm. you hear the same word, word for word, almost as if they're being fed the same script. Have you noticed that? I have noticed that and actually had someone send me a YouTube video that someone had compiled all of the local ABC, NBC, Fox, all the local network people on the like Salt Lake or Denver or New York, those little subsidiaries of the large corporations. And they all and it's just constantly them saying the same thing. One of them was actually about the Easter Bunny. 
And they used exactly the same wording exactly from across the country. It's really fascinating. And yes, in fact, they were being uh, told that. And Jane Stanley was the uh, BBC person who was talking about the, it was Building 7 was referred to as the Solomon Building. And the Solomon Building, aka Building 7, was standing right behind her uh, as she said that it had collapsed. It collapsed actually 20 minutes later. But it's interesting, I also found out that there was an interesting character also in the BBC studios that morning. And he uh, is very interesting. He was a, uh, once the re, uh, prime minister of Israel, Ehud Barak. And he's actually the one, one of the very first people who told us from the BBC studios that it was Osama bin Laden behind this attack. And he is the one who coined the phrase war on terror. I thought that was very interesting. So somebody was in the BBC studio, BBC studio. Actually, someone had to write her teleprompter. And put that in there. Speaking 20 of twenty minutes before the <laughs> the building fell. Speaking of Building Seven, do you think Flight ninety three, the one that quote unquote crashed at Shanksville, was intended to quote unquote crash into Building Seven, but something happened and they had to go to Plan B? I think that's quite possible because one of the things that happened, and this is actually kind of common with the Boeing seven fifty seven. Every once in a while, right when you get at ready to push back, um, you can get a delay like a hydraulic system or something. I think that was just morning traffic that caused their delay, but it was a 41-minute delay. And think about that. It's almost an hour, 41 minutes. Uh, that's a pretty long delay. And that was actually scheduled to uh, depart at um, 8 o'clock or 7.59, somewhere in 8.01, somewhere right in there. So it departed at 8.42, so I guess it would have been 8.01 was their scheduled departure. It was departing from Newark, by the way, from the end of the runway at Newark. You could see the towers when they were there, standing there. It's not maybe five to eight miles away, so they could have actually taken off, and if they wanted to, to uh, crash into Building 7, it wouldn't have taken very long. They would have been pretty low to do that, do that too, if they could have. Done it from there. Speaking of all these planes, now when I see the footage, same thing with me. You know, I used to fly before, not 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 a commercial airliner, but I get the idea. And also, I know that when an airplane crashes into a building, there's some the the, the wings, the the, the the tails, the the front, the nose. There's no way it could penetrate that building like a knife through butter. And that was the, the second plane, the South Tower, the only one we saw. Then we have the Pentagon. Then we have Shanksville. Do you think that planes actually crashed? Well, um, no, I don't. Not these four planes. I, I know where these planes, I did find where, you've read the book, so you know. I, I did find right. where they were taken and how they were taken over. And um, what uh, whatever went into uh, the South Tower, a lot of airline pilots tell me that when they look at that, you, you, it's coming in slow enough that you can stop the frame in a video and see, uh, get measurements on it. It doesn't measure out to be the same uh, 200 series aircraft. It's more like a refueling tanker. And it's interesting, the connections to military refueling tankers and how that all weaves into to this, too, I'm sure will... Uh, talk about that because that's a huge connection into this whole thing. Uh, we can't slow down the film uh, enough to see what hit the North Tower. The Naudet brothers were filming a documentary in New York for the firefighters. They were just a couple blocks away and they 
just put their camera up there just to see something hit there. But it it appears to be smaller than a 767. And aircraft can't go that fast at that close to the sea level. They were about 700 to 1,000 feet off sea level when they hit the building. And they cannot go maximum speed. And if that thing looks like it's going closer to 700 miles an hour, you can't slow down a video to see it. As opposed to the 767 that we saw go into the South Tower, you can slow your video down just to see what that is and actually take measurements. So there's also some other abnormalities about that aircraft where it looks like it has some sort of pod device on the fuselage down below. And the pilots I've talked to have seen it and mentioned it and know that it's it was abnormal. And all, oftentimes the, the remote control device does have some sort of uh, pod type of connection to a fuselage of an aircraft. Now, this remote control thing, this is not high, uh, scientific uh, advanced. They've been doing this since the 70s. They have worked on this. After all, uh, the, the real hijackings that happened there uh, during the 70s. Yeah, that's true. And so, well, let me just kind of jump into something and tell you this, that in the 90s, there was a company that sold to Boeing a flight termination system. It's kind of an override. And it was sold using this language in the event of a hijacking and a hijacker took over the cockpit command of the aircraft we we could land the aircraft remotely and therein the aircraft would be liberated by some SWAT team or military Delta Force, Delta Force type of team and so all four of those airplanes had, they would like us to believe, hijackers that had commandeered the cockpit. So you're asking yourself now, why didn't they use those? Because they were already in use. And when those take over an aircraft, and of course they wouldn't have known they were being taken over, but when those flight termination systems take over an aircraft, they actually override the uh, transponder frequency and they interrupt all ability for the pilots to communicate in any way, shape, or form with anyone, including the flight attendants in the back. Is this why originally when this technology came out, a lot of pilots were against it? Yes, because it, it, when you think about this, in a hijacking, just so you know, we had a set protocols. We had code words to use and step-by-step -step methodology that the FAA uh, shared with us every year in our yearly training. We went over exactly what we would do, wouldn't do, would say, wouldn't say, and very, very careful uh training for this. It was called the common strategy was the FAA's hijacking protocol at that time. And that was, it hadn't changed since the 70s because we really hadn't had a hijacking. So these are the things, the code words and the uh, actions and the reactions that I saw that were not being followed by the flight attendants that really kind of tweaked me to think, uh-oh, there's something else here, not a hijacking. There weren't hijackers really on board because there wouldn't be that level of confusion that, that they reported in. So what would happen is we would try to get the plane on the ground. So that's why in that strategy, it was delay, delay, delay the hijacker from getting inside the cockpit, taking command of the aircraft. So we would had all these little techniques that we would use to prevent them from getting in there. In the meantime, the pilots would turn on their radio and what we call Squawk 7500, which is a frequency, it's an emergency frequency that would tell the air traffic controllers there's a hijacker on board. And it would tell other aircraft and the air, the airline company involved would also be contacted that this there was a hijacking on this flight number from A to B. And um, well, while we, what the pilots would, while the flight attendants would be 
preventing this guy from getting into the cockpit, no matter how we could do it. The pilots then, they would be talking to people on the ground. because So you can see why they wouldn't want to lose their communication, because we would be coordinating, okay, we're going to go into... Cleveland or we're going to go into Denver and we're going to land out remotely and these guys are going to come in. They would be coordinating this with the people on the ground. The military uh, through the ground control people, they would be saying, okay, what we want you to do is go to this remote uh, parking space, you know, X, and uh, we will liberate the aircraft and I will contact you and give you, you know, three beeps on the radio before they bust through the door. They would be talking like that, and to lose that type of communication, we wouldn't know who was coming in, what was happening, when it was going to happen, where to park the plane, and all of that. So you can see losing all communication is really not something the pilots wanted to see happen. Absolutely. And just a quick detour to mention the, and this is unrelated to what we're discussing, but just wanted to get your take on this, the German wings aircraft that that crashed uh, uh, this week, you probably have been following the news that now it's been proven that the captain left the cockpit perhaps to go to the restroom. On the way back, he was locked out by the co-pilot who deliberately crashed the plane. Now, that that, that begs a, a question now. At the, you know, life after 9-11, the cockpit is now reinforced. You cannot get in but look at the situation with a co-pilot taking over. Would there be a time in the future you think that there should be a way to re-enter, perhaps with a code, in the event that this happens again? There is a way to re-enter. And I have my own version of this right now because it's coming out so quickly that they're this guy is not on the voice recorder and there is no flight data recorder that I've heard, although I've been super busy today. I haven't uh, seen if they found it. I know they found the casing for the flight uh, recorder and that records all the instrumentation. All they have is a voice recorder right now. Very commonly, once an airplane gets cruising to cruise altitude, one of the, the pilots might have to use a lavatory. On the outside of that door, by the way, that door is now grenade proof. I think about that, putting a grenade in the airplane, that's a little overkill. <laughs> but on the right-hand side, there's an electronic uh, touch screen, like where you would put in your uh, a code. And so you can get in. There's an uh, electronic thing. I personally believe that uh, this aircraft, because it's the way it's designed in the one computer system that's on board, is extremely sensitive to electromagnetic uh, interference. That uh, this thing was about 125 miles away from CERN, the collider that's fired up now. Mm -hmm. And that they actually could have lost all their instrumentation, not just the door. And the, the co-pilot, there is a button that the pilots can open the door for us when we come in uh, as well. And so there's, uh, depending upon the aircraft and when it was designed and when the doors were redone, there's usually a keypad, electronic keypad on the outside of that door for the captain to unlock the door from the outside and a electronic switch inside. But if nothing electronic was working because of a like an EMP type of a, uh, pulse, then everything on that airplane stopped working. And if we ever find out the from the flight data recorder, we might find out that nothing was working. And that's why it fell out of the sky. I know they're trying to blame this young co-pilot, but this is right. very, very quick. He hasn't said, I'm going to kill everybody. He hasn't said anything, has he? I mean, they're just saying that he wouldn't let that guy in. Well, maybe he couldn't let that guy in. 
And in a few so, weeks, we're going to have a physicist, Dr. Amit Goswami. He's a CERN physicist. And he said, and he will say it on our radio program, he said, we honestly have no effing idea what we're doing about CERN. So this could very well have been what you're saying. That's a very sensitive aircraft as well. They, uh, the Airbus, just so you know, is is the reason you can't use your electronic devices now. At one point, um, I remember when recently when they, you know, when they first had come out, they've just maybe been out for a, six months or a year. And you'll remember there was an Airbus bus crash at a an air show, and I believe it was in France actually. Um, the Airbus. Uh, computer system was so super sensitive that they actually had an aircraft take off on their own, like Hal from the 2001 Space Odyssey. I just decided uh, I'm not going to land. I'm going to take off. Right at the end of the runway, on final approach, the aircraft computer took off. And uh, they actually dissected this to be a disc man. Remember when we went from Walkman to Discman, yes. where you had your personal uh, disc player? And there was a guy sitting in the front row in a first class that was playing one. And that's why they made it so that nobody can use your electronic devices uh, in that first 10,000 feet and the last 10,000 feet as you start your descent. Huh, that was from the Airbus. That's how sensitive they are. And they also uh, don't have quite the... Uh, multiple systems for overriding a computer system like the Boeing aircraft do. Interesting. Now, I've discussed 9-11 for years, but never have I discussed the topic with someone with an airline industry perspective. Now, you mentioned the hijackers. If there are some of the hijackers, Rebecca, who were found to be alive and some of them were employed by, say, Saudi Arabia Airlines, why hasn't anyone interviewed them? Well, that's a great question. And actually, I've just gotten a contacted on my website uh, is fascinating the people that are coming forward um, f from some people in uh, Turkey that say that they, these some of these people that have, have been accused of being the 19 hijackers have been on television so I'm seeing if I can't get a YouTube and if they would be so kind as to um, give me some subtitles or uh, maybe do a voiceover inter and interpret that for me. I'm waiting to see that. These would be the people that um, are on the hijacker list that are still alive in the Middle East. And we have subscribers and listeners all over the Middle East. So if you find any of this footage, please, please, you know how to get in touch with me. Now, you begin the book with one of my favorite quotes, Rebecca, from, from Voltaire. <laughs> to learn the rule... To learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize, unquote. Have you, have you found out who rules over us? You know, I actually saw that uh, when I first started doing this investigation, and this again tripped me into looking real deep. I actually was... You know, in the kit when I work in the kitchen, I'll turn on a television to listen to the news and either Fox or CNN news channel just to get some sort of news. And I don't watch TV, but I'll do that if I'm down putting groceries away or cooking or something. Lies from the left or lies from the right? You mean that, right? <laughs> exactly. And okay. sometimes I go back and forth because I want to see if they're pushing the same agenda or not. Because uh, it is truly, to me, brainwashing. So I, I just watch it so to see how they want us to think well this was really interesting i believe it was on a sean hannity show but i'm not positive but um i heard someone it was probably uh, the 
anniversary of September 11th where they had someone on, it could have been someone from Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. I, I wasn't involved with the investigation much. I just discovered the, that some of those hijackers were still alive and I was just starting to look. But I heard someone question Building 7 and they were called an anti-Semite. And I thought, well, how can you get that out of a building collapse? <laughs> and then that really spurred my, uh, actually, my, my looking deeper because I thought, well, that's just a weird thing. I, I couldn't understand how you could be called an anti-Semite for that. Now, you know, over the years, I mean, I've had Thanksgiving dinners with uh, Shiite. Well, hold on, hold on. Let me finish. Let, let me say this. Mm-hmm. You know, if anybody says anti-Semite, well, maybe because they're talking about the hijackers, because for you to be a Semite, you have to be somebody with with <laughs> uh, original language from the, you know, uh, Aramaic or Arabic. So if you are against Arabs, then you're an anti-Semite too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's very true. I mean, I've had Thanksgiving dinners with a Jewish family, a Iranian Shiite Muslim family, and just Christians. Uh, so, I mean, it's like, I just found that so odd to me that I was like, how did they get anti-Semite out of this building seven falling down? And now I, I was still glued to my television set that afternoon uh, of 9-11, and I saw that building come down. And quite frankly, I thought it was a controlled demolition. I act, had worked for someone who did control demolitions of large buildings. I'd seen plenty of them on television. And I really thought they, they did that. And I thought my first reaction was, how in the world did they get that wired for demolition so quickly? Because uh, it was a demolition as far as I could see. Unless then- they used another technology. And you very well mentioned throughout the book, the pulverization, the dustification, the powder that was all over people. Some people say that traits of thermite or nanothermite was found. But that day, there was no thermal signature. There was no seismic signature. There was no radioactive signature. That that eliminates the, the and I know you don't focus a lot of this in the book, mm-hmm. but there's no nuclear detonation. There's no thermite and there's no, uh, the the explosions. Yeah, we saw some explosions. Maybe they, maybe they did play some explosions so that we could talk about them. But look at all the paper that was flying around. Perhaps an exotic technology was used that day. Well, and that's an interesting uh, subject, too. And since my book came out, I've actually been contacted by scientists that are trying to uh, very gently and very carefully let me know that there are technologies that you and I aren't even aware of that exist that were used. And I believe that more than one technology was probably used. They may have used... um, uh, some kind of nanothermite. I found one. One of the things I found in my discoveries is is some of the people that were connected to, uh, some of the people that were connected to those buildings were actually connected to uh, a company that made nanothermite paint, and so there could have been a lot of that used. There was a lot of construction going on. Some of the elevators were closed down for construction. Uh, some of the um, asbestos was being removed and some of the fireproofing had just recently been redone just above and just below exactly where the planes hit coincidentally and so that fireproofing when they took out the asbestos actually could have been uh, the sole gel uh, nanothermite paint could have been applied right there well they, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned also in the book you use the term <clears throat> pardon me cold fusion and I don't know if you knew this but uh, Dr. Eugene Malov, who discussed cold fusion, and a lot of the people who were running away from the building when the powder was falling, they all said the same thing. It was cold. And then consequently, a few months later, the nephew of Dr. Eugene Malov 
who was a student of Dr. Judy Wood, who wrote the book, Where Did the Towers Go?, started looking into this. And guess what? He was killed. He was mugged and killed. Oh, well, that doesn't surprise me. Um, I know what happened to uh, Stephen Jones, who was a professor, physics professor. He'd worked at the Department of Energy as well. And when he discovered nanothermite residue in some of the dust that was collected, uh, which indicated that it was not, uh, the buildings were not taken down by kerosene jet fuel and office fires, but something much uh, more powerful, uh, that he was uh, basically... Uh, ridiculed and mocked and uh, he's still alive luckily but um, you'll notice that I actually designed a character after Stephen Professor Stephen Jones and I named him Jonas Stevens I suspected that <laughs> but let's also don't rem remember that Lenin said it best the best way to control the opposition is to lead it ourselves sometimes they plant characters I'm not gonna name names are we not gonna be discussing how the towers fell but actually the logistics of how it happened but Remember, there's controlled opposition out there, and sometimes this has happened throughout history. But mm -hmm. in the book, of course, the star of the book is Vera. Mm -hmm. Are you Vera? Well, I'm, I'm a lot like her, and here's why I say that. And the reason I really wrote this book in the form that I did and to, to go the path that you took when you jumped on board with Vera um, is to wake people up. And I was just like Vera in cognitive dissonance. I didn't want to look at this. I didn't want to, I didn't want to know who did it. I didn't want to know how it was done. I just wanted to stay in my safe little world and just do my day-to-day -day stuff. When I found those hijackers were still alive. And then this, you know, year when I talked to a firefighter from New York that had been involved, I, I just wanted to find the truth. And I didn't care who I who I found at the end of that rabbit hole. I didn't have any preconceived notions about uh, Arabs or Muslims or Jews or Catholics or any other group of people. I just wanted to find out what happened. I knew from day one that no aircraft uh, crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. There was That is not a crash site. And also at the Pentagon. And I, I didn't ever see that morning and for quite some time, I didn't see what went into the North Tower and uh, I saw that plane that went into the South Tower. I just couldn't figure out how they made it happen. So when I went into this, I, I really just looked for all of the connections and connected all the pieces of this puzzle. <laughs> That's why I, I chose to put that on the cover. And I felt that this really was the missing piece because we know that two of those four planes didn't crash into those two sites and we don't know what crashed into the tower so that's where my search went to and that's where what happened to me was I ended up going into uh, those phone calls of the first flight that left and the information that I found most of this information by the way was found in FBI documents and if that doesn't make the hair on the back of your neck stand up nothing will. I remember back in 2004 Five, I think it was after Bush Jr. won again, one of my brother, I have two brothers who worked in the airline industry, and a younger one came to me in private, of course, and he said, I want you to see this PowerPoint presentation of what crashed or didn't crash at the Pentagon. And at the time, I was believing every lie that came through Fox News, I remember. <laughs> and I basically stopped talking to my brother for two months. I was offended that he would even imply that a well-intentioned government had something to do with this. But in silence, Rebecca, and you probably maybe 
have gone through this in life too. In silence, you started researching and 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 finding the missing links. Mm-hmm. And then I said, my goodness, I've been believing all this stuff. This has been happening historically. The the uh, uh, the Gulf of Tonkin, the mm-hmm. Maine, the Lusitania, uh, Pearl Harbor. You name it. It's been happening for forever. They tried that with the USS Liberty, if you'll That's remember. That's right, of course. That was attacked by the Israeli Air Force, and they tried to blame that on Egypt because they wanted us to attack Egypt. Right. And that our own government, uh, if you, if your listeners aren't familiar with the USS Liberty, uh, I highly suggest you get an education on that. There are several survivors. I'm actually friends with several on Facebook. Uh, that are speaking out and they do some incredible presentation. What our government did to those military guys on the USS Liberty, they completely covered it up to protect Israel. That's just amazing. But that was the plan, was to turn us against Israel and that we would attack them. Mm-hmm. To turn against Egypt and attack Egypt. I so mean, that, is, excuse me, Egypt. Yeah. Right. That was during the, the Six-Day War. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And did you actually, I know Vera complained in the book to the FAA. Did you, did you complain to the FAA? Um, I didn't personally, but I know people that did. And I also have been contacted by people, uh, flight attendants from almost every airline that actually did the same thing, our pilots. Um, after 9-11, you know, we bought into it. I mean, we, we just, we had no reason to doubt the FAA and we had no reason to doubt the government because, you know, our safety and security depending on NORAD scrambling a jet in six minutes. I'd seen it done before, so I knew they were there. I don't know why it took an hour and a half on 9-11. <laughs> Of my ideas, but um, we uh, we all know, and still to this very day, there are holes in every fence. There are gates that aren't really are manned by anybody. Maybe the guy sits there, but you could show him a you know Costco membership card or your credit <laughs> card and get into the tarmac, you know. And so we all saw that. We've all gone through this. We uh, did this. I know Chicago's still to this day got gaping holes in their security. So after 9/11, we all went in and. I have had so many flight attendants tell me that same story. They connected so well with that story that Vera tells that they did the same thing and they were threatened with their job. Uh, get out. We don't want to hear about it. And that, again, for us as professionals, we started to see that's not normal. If you really wanted to fix security, then you would do that, not squeeze out a flight attendant's toothpaste every trip or my lotions. And that's what they were doing. They were hitting on us. When they started, uh, the Department of Homeland Security started up right away. They hired people. I don't even know where they got them off the street. Craigslist ads, I guess. And they'd lay out tables in front of the jetway. And they would randomly select, but every flight attendant got randomly selected. And they went through all of our stuff. They'd squeeze out our toothpaste, squeeze out our suntan lotion or body lotions or whatever. I mean, you couldn't carry any of your stuff with you anymore to go to work because uh, they that's they were <laughs> crazy. And they wanted to show the passengers that, hey, we're doing this to the crew members too. And so if if you didn't get picked randomly and only just two or three people, after you'd seen this presentation in front of the jetway of us trying to get to work, then you were supposed to feel safe. But they still never close the gaping holes in the fences, so to speak. I remember this event back in, uh, geez, late 2011. I was leaving home to go to L.A., and I see TSA walking by, and I see a, a uh, an elderly woman talking on the phone, and she had a cup of coffee. 
and they asked her to hang up the phone because they needed to measure the coffee to see if she had any chemicals, any bomb or explosives in, in the coffee. And she so happily did it. Then they proceeded to go to a, a young female with a baby. She was uh, uh, giving the baby uh, milk via the bottle. And they asked her, ma'am, do you mind if we take a sample of your milk? And everybody did it, no questions asked. On the way back from L.A., I was doing a, a History Channel uh, filming there. On the way back, it was the day they introduced the full-body X-ray machines. It took two hours <laughs> to go through it. And it looked around me, and it really felt like cattle. This is where mm-hmm. we're going. This is, this is incredible, the way we are just giving our rights away without anybody question it, questioning it. It, it's amazing. Well, let me just tell you this. Um, I wouldn't fly now if you gave me a free ticket. I would not uh, subject myself to that. And um, I don't really feel that the planes are safe. So I wouldn't personally go ever onto an airplane. If I can't drive there, I won't go there. That's the next That's question. That's the way I feel. That begs the next question. <laughs> are we safer today than we were on September the 10th, 2001? Well, actually, no. And uh, let me just kind of touch on... Uh, this kind of lead into why I'm saying no. What I did when I looked into the flight attendant phone calls from that first flight, I heard the flight attendant say things that absolutely triggered my brain going, oh my goodness. She said right away that he, as in one hijacker, both of the flight attendants from flight 11 referred to this hijacker as one individual, not three, not five, not anything but one he and she said he has sprayed pepper spray or mace in business class we can't breathe in business class and I read that and I read it again and I thought to myself I remember one time coming out of Hawaii and they have these cheap uh, perfume body sprays of very flowery floral things and someone sprayed it (laughs) and someone sprayed it up in one of the zones and everyone on the airplane was smelling it and complaining about it. And I thought, well, if that were pepper spray or mace and they were in a pressurized cabin in the air, everyone would be smelling that pepper spray or mace and it would be coughing. And you're, if you've ever been around pepper spray or mace, uh, it makes your eyes water, makes right. it very hard to breathe. It's very uncomfortable. And yet this flight attendant sat on the phone for 27 minutes and never complained or coughed once. Both of these flight attendants sat on the phone 27 minutes. And so I thought, hmm, interesting that she isn't reacting to this pepper spray or mace. It's the first thing she reported. And then she said this, he went, he stood upstairs. And there are no stairs on a 767, only on a Boeing 747. Right. Mm -hmm. And I thought upstairs, well, there's hangar, there's stairs at a hangar. And so I already realized. And then when she said this, we're the first. And they were the first. They were the first airplane that was supposedly hijacked that day. And I thought somebody told her the scenario that we're the first. And then she said she went on to say that they um, they were not able to contact or call the cockpit. And then I realized that the flight termination system had ended all communication with the cockpit. And if the if that were the case, and the flight termination system were landing the plane, then she would want to know because remember she was on a six hour flight. She was working the back galley. Her first job 
in that first, well, about 20 minutes into the flight when they reached a cruise altitude, would have been pulling those meal carts out and stuffing the, you know, eggs and pancakes into it and building uh, the carts up with the coffee and orange juice and everything to serve the breakfast. There were almost 100 passengers on board. So I know what she would have been doing. There would have been no reason for her to call the cockpit unless the aircraft was starting a descent. And that way she would want to know because uh, she'd want to stow and lock those uh, meal carts and beverage carts back into the galley. And she would also think that they were having some type of emergency and wanted to know from the pilots what should she be preparing the cabin and the passengers for, because this was the start of a six-hour flight. And that's when I realized that something was going on and the pilots couldn't receive her call because the flight termination system had taken over. The second person that called in from that flight, Amy Sweeney, another flight attendant, she initially reported that the hijacker, again, one single man, was seated in 9B. Later on, she called back and said that she'd made a mistake. Let me tell you this, that's a mistake a flight attendant will never make. Because if I say that you, uh, in you know 9B, are a hijacker, and we do land this aircraft, and we get the SWAT team or the Delta Force to come on, they're not going to treat you kindly. You may not even live through it. So I would never, no, no flight attendant would make the mistake of possibly saying you were a hijacker and you weren't. She would be 150% positive or she wouldn't have said a seat number. She called back and she said, oh no, I'm, I made a mistake. It was 10B who was a hijacker. And in 10B were sitting two Arab gentlemen, right? And 9B, I looked into this guy. Now, lo and behold, what coincidence of all coincidences, he is a highly trained assassin from a foreign intelligence agency. He was also trained as an anti-hijacking specialist, and he was also a specialist in hostage rescue. And that's what type of force would come uh, to this hijacked aircraft. Yeah, he was with a, 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 a... an Israeli Defense Forces unit called the Sayeret Matkal, and I assume that is part of the Mossad as well. I don't understand quite how the Mossad is in connection with, in comparison with the CIA is to our military, if they're separate or or what. But yeah, he was called Sayeret Matkal. Interesting thing about the Sayeret Matkal, and it's S-A-Y-E-R-E-T-M-A-T-K-A-L. You can look it up and Google search it, and there you're going to find that there's a couple other interesting characters that were also Sayeret Matkal, like 9B, who we are to assume was killed by a plastic box cutter. Uh, that would be Bibi Netanyahu and Ehud Barak. And you'll remember Ehud Barak was in the BBC studios that morning telling us that it it was Osama bin Laden who did this. And he's actually the man who, who coined the phrase war on terror. So here we have a special forces, highly trained assassin that um, he was, by the way, from Denver, Colorado. He was fluent in English, Hebrew, and Arabic. He is sitting now in the row ahead of uh, two Arab hijackers who are uh, assuming that they're talking about taking over the cockpit, getting up and taking over the aircraft, which is what we're led to believe they did. And on their way to the cockpit, they for no reason just decided to cut this guy and kill him. Uh, But his friends all said about him he could kill any human being with a pen and a credit card. I don't know why when he was sitting there listening, and just remember the last time you flew, how many times you've been on an aircraft and you've overheard a conversation from that row behind you because those people are sitting with their mouth facing your direction and they're about 
a foot and a half to two feet away from your ear. So he obviously was able to hear what they were planning, and there is no explanation to why they would stop on their way to the cockpit and decide to uh, you know, sh stab this guy with a, a box cutter and kill him. So it was interesting as I continued to study the two flight attendants, well, the girl calls back and she said she was wrong. It wasn't 9B who was the hijacker. It was 10B, and he had stabbed 9B. But she also said the other flight attendant, Betty Ong, was seated at the last, second to the last row of seats with her. Well, Betty kept saying, and she said this probably 10 times in the transcripts that I have, that she was seated at 3R jump seat. Well, if that's a flight attendant jump seat, that's not the second to the last row in coach. They also continued to say two very conflicting information. Betty Ong said there were no medical personnel on board. Amy Sweeney said a doctor and a nurse were tending to 9B. So when I saw all this, and then Betty Ong or Amy Sweeney was asked by her supervisor within about one minute before supposed impact to the North Tower, do you know where you're at? Can you look out the window? And she just said, I see plane, I see buildings, I see water, boom, and the line went dead. And any flight attendant that's been around for more than a month that's ever flown into Manhattan once, she was one minute before impact into the North Tower. She was over Manhattan. There is nothing like New York, New York. They even make songs about it. And it's huge. It's 365 square miles. When you're all flying into or out of New York, you see that for much more than uh, three minutes. And so the fact that she'd been flying 13 years and she didn't know where she was when she looked out the window told me she was probably in an office in a hangar somewhere, and she didn't know the answer. Now, obviously, they must have been talking under duress, or no? I think so. I, I think, well, here's what... What has happened after the books come out, I've had lots of conversations with people that knew them personally. And uh, what we think most likely happened is there weren't 19 hijackers on board. There were handlers on each flight, maybe three or four handlers. These are people that were there for a reason. Probably 9B was one of them. That's all. That was all his specialty after all. He was a trained assassin, an anti-hijacking specialist, and a hostage rescue specialist. So here he is. He would know. Uh, he would know what to do. He would know what was going to happen too. So we. I think what they were told uh, was that they were part of one of the dozen or more ongoing drills that day. I don't know if your listeners know sure. that there were several military war games going on across the country that day and if they they said well we've we've uh, hijacked your aircraft using the flight termination system as part of a drill for NORAD uh, or the uh, Navy or the FAA or all of them and so we're going to have you and you come off the aircraft and make a couple phone calls to us and everybody else uh, just stay seated and when they brought those each plane by the way had two callers taken off and um, I believe, quite frankly, that um, the, when they shut the door to the aircraft, that that mace or pepper spray that almost everyone called and talked about, when Peter Hansen called back from Flight 175, he called to his dad, and he reported mace or pepper spray had been sprayed, and he reported that the passengers all around him were vomiting and getting sick. And that's not a reaction you get from mace or pepper spray. It is, however, a Cyanide. reaction. 
or you some other gas. Exactly. Yeah. A lethal gas like that. And uh, hydrogen cyanide will kill you in, in less than three minutes. Now, let's dissect that pathologically dissect. Well, I guess we cannot do it pathologically because we really don't have 100% of the evidence, but we can speculate. Let's dissect this. Say you are, and you are an experienced flight attendant. Let's say you are in one of those planes. What do you think happened to the plane, to the people from the moment that it departed their their uh, airports? Well, I think after, uh, so far, I'm actually looking through some radar data, and I think the aircraft were commandeered <clears throat> about 13 minutes after takeoff or less, and uh, they were landed. I remember those first phone calls came in uh, 20 minutes from Boston, and that's exactly where the location is all four aircraft were taken to. And um, they were, the passengers, of course, wouldn't know because they started a descent right away because they would probably climb up to about, I'm going to guess, around 18,000, 19,000 feet. And then they were commandeered and, and landed. Um, I've actually traced the aircraft uh, out of Boston right to the end of the runway at this particular place where they were brought in. And uh, they would not have known unless at that point the handlers would have notified them either by getting on keep in mind that a hostage rescue person who is an anti-hijacking specialist he would know exactly how the interphone on the aircraft worked as well so it'd be very easy for him to make a an announcement and he was fluent in english he was from denver colorado and so he could easily make an announcement to tell them that they're part of a drill and that they would be landing and uh then they, that's exactly what I, I believe they were told or the flight attendants and the pilots would have fought back. If they thought they were hijackers, so to speak, and not part of a drill, they would have fought with their lives, every single one of them. And so I think they were just told that. And then those two people were taken off each aircraft until Flight 93. They took 11 of them off. And they... Uh, they gassed once, the rest. Yeah, they gassed the rest. Now, they only had 15 minutes between... The two now. So after the book came out, in interviews, I never say where exactly that location is. If you're good at Google Earth, you can find it. It's 20 minutes from Boston, and I also teach the reader how to go into a website that is a real website where you can check the flight time from uh, Newark and from Dulles and to that location and tell you exactly how to do it because uh, Vera and Jim do that and that's how they make that discovery and that's exactly how I made that discovery and when I did I got physically ill I couldn't read I couldn't write I couldn't eat for quite a long time I was so sick to think that what I had found was probably what happened to the planes and the passengers and the crew members it really shook me up Let's just say that it was probably a inactive, maybe, military base, or it was used on the weekends, and it had very large hangars that could store a C-5, which means that more than one plane could have been inside a, a, a hangar, correct? Quite possibly. Those are huge hangars. The C-5 is bigger than a 747. Right. So I did a, a radio interview right after the book was released, and someone contacted me that had been in a reserve unit based there and told me, I know exactly the base you're, and location you're talking about. I was based there, and they activated my unit on the morning of 9-11, and the base had been evacuated, and we were all locked out for three days. They put them up in hotels. And she said, it wasn't until I heard your compelling interview that I realized why we were locked out of my base. Huh. 
And obviously, being a military base, they must have cremation facilities too, wouldn't they? Yes, all bases have large, not cremation, but incinerators. Incinerators, they, right. Yeah, they get rid of a lot of paperwork and uh, different things. So, yeah, they all have large incinerators on, on ground. So, okay, say the plane departed, the air traffic control is monitoring, as you know. Could they, once they took the, the airplane by remote control, could another plane, let's say I turn off the transponder, and another airplane meets me at the same place, turns on the transponder, that gives the air traffic control the illusion that the plane is still going. Could that have happened? Well, it may have, could have happened, but I have documentation that shows something else happened, and that means that the radar data that we were shown to be the flight plan of the aircraft was completely fake. That's the Inslaw Paradis software that you... There you go. Mm -hmm. Promise software, backdoor... I mean Paradis, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. By the way, the name, the real name, if you don't know, folks, there's there's an octopus software out there called Paradis. Google it. I'm not sure if you'll be able to find it, but it's the actual, what some people call the beast. Well, anyway, that's a different mm-hmm. story. Interesting. Well, you know, I, I refer to the shadow government as the octopus. And there is actually a story about a journalist named Danny Casalero. He was a true figure. And he was on the trail of the octopus. And he was basically hunting down the connection between the United States government, several of our alphabet agencies, and the drugs and arms that are running and uh, keeping the, the uh, war on drugs. Uh, and the war on terror, actually, both alive and well. And how they... Uh, finance all their black operations and that sort of thing. And he was the, one of the last great investigative journalists in this country, and he was uh, murdered as well. Oh, Gary Webb, and I can mention mm-hmm. a, a number of others. Now, you mentioned a lot about a character who I think you refer to, not by this name, but I think you were in real life, Kurt Sonnenfeld. You know who that name is, right? Who that person yes, is? Yes, actually, yes. I did use his uh, name. He was a FEMA photographer. And an interesting story about him, um, he was also living in uh, Colorado. He got phoned up by his boss, who he couldn't believe was at work at 6 in the morning because he never showed up till after 9, and sent to uh, the moment the first tower was hit, he was sent to New York. And uh, I I don't know how he got there. I don't know if they sent him, I'm assuming, a government jet. Right. But he was there taking photographs for about a month, and... uh, Apparently, he didn't turn in everything, and he saw things that were indicators that um, this was a, an inside job, and other things were going on. And and I don't have his, all of his photographs, but I'm pretty sure one of the things that he found, because one of the things I discovered was under Building 4 and Building 6, there were um, big vaults. Under Building 4, I believe, was the Bank of Nova Scotia, and they had a huge vault of precious metals and gold, and... Uh, those uh, vaults were found with the hanging, the door hanging off one hinge was broken open and emptied prior to the uh, rescuers getting down underneath those. Uh, because Kurt buildings. took some pictures and found dust where the gold would have been, which is evidence that the gold was taken prior to the explosions or whatever happened. That's correct. And they, um, they actually framed him for the uh, murder of his wife, who uh, was a suicide, but she had a history, long history of depression. And the way they handled him is an interesting story. You can find his story online, Kurt Sonnenfeld. And I, 
I have kind of lost track only because I've just been so super busy, but I did hear, I think in January, that he's been in Argentina and that the Argentine government was giving him up to the United States uh, for uh, extradition. He's uh, been in court a couple times and they really don't have a case against him, but they want him and they want that. Tw he didn't turn in uh, some film, like 29 hours worth of uh, videography, uh, video film. And uh, so when he, they put him in jail, uh, apparently his in ho entire house was ransacked and they're, they're searching for what, what he has. He has proof that's pretty damning. Now, in the book, of course, you – this is a great story, great for a movie. I hope that Oliver Stone and Mel Gibson can get a hold of you and get this mm -hmm. done. But in the in the uh, book, you talk about the Patriot Hotel, a fictitious hotel in Las Vegas where the there's a plane that crashes similar to what happened in 9-11. But I have to ask you, the lack of videos, the lack of footage, the lack of – Evidence, just like at the Pentagon, the most secured, <laughs> best protected, and most heavily guarded building in the entire world, not to mention all the cameras that should be available. What is your opinion of that? Well, you know, that's why uh, you know, a lot of people don't like my character building in the first, so they just want to dig into the 9-11 stuff. But that's why I put all of that in there was to relate everything that happened on 9-11. And that Patriot right. is exactly to relate to the Pentagon and the fact that everyone, and if you go to Las Vegas ever, everyone has a camera, everyone's got a phone or a camera phone or, you know, camera in addition uh, nowadays. And that's why um, there were 85 closed circuit television cameras on the Pentagon. Don't forget the Pentagon is the most highly protected building in the world. And within 30 minutes of whatever it was that struck the Pentagon or exploded in the Pentagon or both, uh, the FBI was confiscating all of those from the uh, gas stations and hotels around the Pentagon. And uh, they were they have been sealed for time and eternity. And so we may never know what, what this on those cameras. It's certainly there is no 757 or they would show it. If they weren't hiding something, they would show it. And so, well, let me just kind of touch on something else before I forget, because um, I'm kind of going all over the map with this, but getting back to how the flight termination system took over and how it was sold to the airlines, the guy who was the CEO of that company, SPC Corporation, they actually still build uh, the our flight termination systems, how we control our drones around the world right now. But his name was Rabbi Dov Zakheim. And Rabbi Dov Zakheim was also, uh, interestingly enough, the uh, comptroller for the United States Pentagon. And he was the guy who was under investigation for uh, this misplaced $2.3 trillion that Donald Rumsfeld told us about on television the day before, on September 10th, that they were investigating missing $2.3 trillion. That's mm -hmm. trillion with a T. And he also is involved with, uh, under SPC, there's another uh, subsidiary company called TriData. And TriData, interesting history, was one of the construction companies that uh, fixed and repaired the World Trade Center towers after the 1993 bombings. And so he, his company, TriData, actually is one of the only companies that have the blueprints for the World Trade Center towers. Architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth to this day cannot get a copy of the blueprints for the for the World Trade Center Tower 1 and 2, North and South Tower, and those things have been gone for 14 years. They can't get a copy, but he uh, had a copy, TriData had a copy, 
And he also is involved with a consortium, a group of uh, individuals, that they did something else. They refurbished commercial 767s and turned them into military refueling tankers and sold them to military uh, militaries around the world. And so without the good Rabbi Dov Zakheim, we could not have had 9-11 happen. So he got some free airplanes to add to his inventory. They could have easily kept those planes hidden in the hangars and flown them out after dark. Exactly. The $2.3 trillion, that's more money that many countries' GDP are combined with. What do you think that money was used for? Well, it's hard to say. Um, but some of these people that were involved in, in one aspect or the other, you would think that people like the head of the FAA and the hijack coordinator that left town that day and didn't leave anybody with his job uh, responsibilities, you would think those people would have lost their job and never found another one and ever, never been hired again if you fail as bad as everyone failed on 9-11. But those people actually all went to work for either an Israeli company or the company called MITRE, M-I-T-R-E. And remember, it was MITRE and P-TECH that were in located in the FAA headquarters for two years prior to 9-11. And MITRE company is the shadow government. And they also, their specialty is radar. And so that radar I'm telling you about that was uploaded and that's completely faked uh, after the aircraft were uh, landed, uh, they could have easily put that in. Now, that's what, your specialty. <laughs> what would our government, you know, think of the word treason here for a moment. Why would our government give any other government backdoor access to essentially giving away our own national security. That, to, to, to me, is not nothing but treason. It makes the United States not of America, but of something else. Well, that's true. And what I found is this P-Tech company, they were a three-year-old company when uh, their uh, marketing guy was a, an, a Jewish attorney named Michael Goff. And he, through Michael Chertoff, got into 22 United States computer systems, including but not limited to FAA, NORAD, the U.S. Navy, Air Force One, some of the White House bunkers that were used that day, um, most major banks, and a lot of embassies, just to name a few of the 22 different computer systems that P-TECH was involved in. Now, it's interesting, P-TECH was financed by a Lebanese gentleman and a Saudi Arabian. They were a brand-new foreign-owned company, and you cannot tell me why we couldn't go to a company like Microsoft and have this done by a, an American company. And by the way, P-TECH, they have every aspect of our national security. If you see a nuclear warhead go off, they can make that happen too. They actually controlled Air Force One's communications on the day of 9-11. And President Bush was unable to communicate for the very first time from the air, from Air Force One, until noon that day. He couldn't talk to the vice president in one of the bunkers because of this. But it's interesting, some of the people that I'm looking into now, if if there weren't 19 hijackers, who was on board? And a lot of the people that we were led to believe were heroes on Flight 93 were actually involved in communication systems. But where are they? Uh, well, some of that $2.3 trillion might be uh, <laughs> paying for their facial surgery mm. and uh, their income. I, and it's just what I'm going to guess. But and let me talk a little bit for a second on the next flight out of, of Boston, because this is how I was putting the pieces together. 
um, there were two passengers that called out from that flight. Peter Hansen, 32-year-old gentleman, he used the terminology airline hostess had been stabbed. And that is not something that Americans call us. We've been flight attendants since 1968. Before that, we were called stewardesses. stewardesses yes. We have never been called airline hostess. And airline hostess is a term that's used in the Middle East. I, I mean, I, you can Google search El Al, the Israeli airline. They call their hostesses or their flight attendants airline hostess. Um, some Asian companies do. And um, I remember being as a flight attendant in China or Japan and uh, hearing some somebody you know, see me, oh, airline hostess. And that's kind of what they, that's a terminology that just isn't American, which kind of highlighted that for me. I was like, wow, that's weird. And then um, again, he called back at nine o'clock, three minutes before impact into the South Tower, supposedly. And he tells his dad, he thinks the hijacker's going to fly the plane into Chicago and into a building. And prior to 9-11, no one would have ever dreamed that scenario up. Another interesting character calls in at the same time again, nine o'clock. He's an F-14 pilot, and he was six foot two, 225 pounds. By the way, the hijackers were all five six, five seven, and five eight. Real, sh real small little guys. They weren't big, but this guy was six foot two, 225 pounds. He was an F-14 pilot that was trained in the Top Gun School at Miramar, California. He uh, fought in the first Gulf War. His friends said about him he could kill any human being with his bare hands. He didn't even need a pen and a credit card. So he, what he does uh, during this hijacking, instead of knock these guys out or kill them with his bare hands like his friends all bragged he could do, he called his mommy at 9 o'clock, three minutes before impact. And when she asked him where he was located, he looked out the window and said he's over Ohio. He's three minutes before impact in the South Tower. So he's either over the Hudson or he's uh, looking out the window in Manha at Manhattan. Was he the one who said, my name is, and he used his first no. and last name? Okay. No, that was a different guy. But this guy went on to say something else that triggered me. And I realized then that he, he's either been told what to say or he's actually one of the handlers. He said to his mother at three minutes before impact, eight minutes after the the passengers are starting to make these phone calls and realizing supposedly they're hijacked. Eight minutes is not much time to organize. And let me tell you, flight attendants are not going to give up control and let you organize a mutiny uh, from the hijackers. We're controlled. We are trained to do that. And you, we would tell you to sit down and shut up. <laughs> okay. So that's what we are trained to do. Okay. So sit down and shut up and we're going to handle this. But what he says to his mom, and this just flipped me out. He says, a bunch of us passengers are thinking about taking over the cockpit. And that's the plan for Flight 93. Someone told him the scenario of the day. Here we've got Betty Ong saying, we're the first. We've got this guy and Peter Hansen saying they're gonna fly us into a building. And then he says, we're gonna take over the cockpit. That's the entire scenario of that day. And I realized that, uh-oh, they're busted. <laughs> Incredible. folks. We have to take a one and only intermission, Rebecca. But okay. I have to tell you, I read the book with an open mind. It's written fiction. But a lot of what you show is a future of hope. When you turn on the TV right now, it only takes 60 seconds for anybody to get depressed. Really, that's all you get from TV. And that's why I made fun when I said CNN or Fox News is brainwashing from the left or the right. Well, you propose a scenario that's very, very hopeful, yet attainable really attainable. So I suggest that you buy this book, Methodical Illusion. How can people buy it, Rebecca? 
Well, it's available um, as a Kindle on Amazon for $9.11. It's also on Amazon Softback, and it's somewhere between 15 and 16-something. Uh, it changes every day, so I can't tell you exactly. It's available for order at Barnes & Noble. You'll need, if you'd like to go to your local bookstore, it's on the Ingram list. It's not on anybody's shelf. I, I can hardly manage to keep them at my place myself. You can also get one. I, I just had my uh, publisher build a secure... Uh, ordering site from the website and that's just strictly methodicalillusion.com and you can go click on there and you'll go into a secure square store and put your information in there it's a little box if you'd like it autographed to someone personally you can also buy more than one and save some money if you want to buy more than 12 you can call the uh, publisher directly if you want to uh, a lot of people are buying uh, two copies and putting one in their local library to get it out there which is really wonderful because the response has been oh it wakes people up to the reality and a few weeks ago i was supposed to have rebecca on but she was so sold out <laughs> of her books that of course we didn't get a copy so we had to postpone the interview because as you know folks I read every single book to have the most meaningful conversation and I hope that part two is going to be as meaningful as part one folks don't go anywhere I'm here with my special guest Rebecca Roth much more to come please don't go anywhere thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview if you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest go to veritasradio.com Click on members or subscribe, or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, detoxified iodine, supplements, a USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy.
But I'm still not sure But what I do know Is to us the world is different As we are to the world But I guess you would know that Please don't go I want you to stay I'm begging you please Please don't leave here I don't want you to hate For all the hurt that you feel The world is just illusion Trying to change you Please don't go I want you to stay I'm begging you please Oh please don't leave here I don't want you to change For all the hurt that you feel This world is just illusion Always trying to change you Veritas, Mal. Always willing to talk. 